Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, where we have smart conversations about pregnancy, parenting, healthcare, feminism, politics, everything, the whole enchilada. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which you can pick up wherever you get your books. Um, and last week, we went through a couple emails. Um, and this week, we're going to address a couple of more. Both of the, um, actually, it's probably one of the most common emails that I get lately is about bacterial vaginosis, which is a vaginal infection caused when um, one bacterial colony that naturally lives in the vagina multiplies disproportionately. Um, And that causes a smell and a discharge and an uncomfortable feeling. I get so many emails about BV that Every once in a while, we just have to give it a revisit. Um, Let's read one of these emails now. Good afternoon. I just read your article regarding bacterial vaginosis. I was told in my first trimester, around eight weeks, that I had a little BV when they did my pap. I am now in my 15th week. They prescribed a medication to use at night for five days. I did notice a slight odor a few days ago, but now it's not there. Do you recommend using the gel still? I haven't started it yet. Will it do any harm to me or the baby if the bacterial vaginosis is not even present? I keep calling my doctor worried, and I thought I would get another opinion. Thanks. Oh, Michelle. So, yeah, I would go ahead and use that medication. I do not think it's going to do any harm to you or the baby. Though, um, you know, having... Not every woman knows when they have bacterial vaginosis. You know, not every woman has symptoms, but it could be brewing in there, irritating tissues. And um, if they saw it on a pap smear, if it were me, I would go ahead and just use the gel and be done with it. Um, I got a, oh, and you know, the part about you keep calling your doctor worried. And, you know, if you're calling your doctor and you are not getting the reassurance that you need, then you need to have a stronger conversation with the doctor. Um, You might want to start with your doctor's nurse. You know, call the office and say, hey, I really need, I have a question and I really need to speak with my doctor's nurse. Can you have her call me back at her convenience? And then tell her what you're going through. You know, woman to woman, it's, you know, she'll help you figure that out. And if you tell her, listen, I really just don't feel like my doctor is listening to me. Um, How can I get him to really address these concerns? You know, consider her your ally. That's what a nurse's job is, is to sort of, you know, help facilitate the relationship between the patient and the doctor. So call on her to do her job. Uh, Let's see. I got a very similar letter from Hazel about bacterial vaginosis and another one from Alice. And then I got one from Mariana about diabetes. So I remembered that we talked about all this pretty darn well last year. And since I'm off on spring break this week, I thought what better than to do a replay on episode 19, where I answer all those questions and more. For a long, long time, I was a labor and delivery nurse, and I answered questions for patients all day long. And later, I wrote the Ask the Labor Nurse column for Fit Pregnancy Magazine. And again, I answered readers' questions about 
pregnancy and labor and birth and parenting and doctor situations and then some. And now I'm answering questions right here on this podcast. And today I have picked out three that I think represent a lot of women's concerns. So let's get right to it. I've gotten just so much email lately and I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast and then reaching out. You guys have some awesome questions. So here's the first one. Amanda wrote, I am pregnant with my first baby due March 29th. Oh, you're coming right up on that, Amanda. And I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes at 26 weeks. I am on insulin now at all meals and at night, and the gestational diabetes is very well controlled. I stick to my diet and I walk regularly. I do have nerve nerve pain that can raise my blood sugars, but for the most part, the GD is all really well controlled and baby is regularly regularly active and happy according to all the tests. The endocrinologist said that the insulin is protecting me and the baby. However, my obstetrician says that because I need insulin and can't control it with diet and exercise alone, she doesn't want me to go past my due date and she's even considering inducing me a week early. I think my due date is about a week early anyway and really don't want to be induced unless it's necessary for the safety of myself or the baby. Can you explain the risks of going past your due date with gestational diabetes? Thanks so much, Amanda. So basically, Amanda, your physician is worried about a couple of things. The insulin factor um, and your gestational diabetes means that they're going to be following a standard of care where they keep an eye on your blood sugar really, really carefully during labor. Um, You might have a couple of IVs and you might be getting insulin throughout your labor as well. And so just for the sake of, you know, feeling like they've got you know, their hands on the wheel driving this thing, they're going to feel a lot more comfortable if um, you have a scheduled labor, aka induction. Now, their other concern is um, they're worried that your baby might be getting too big for you to deliver. So with gestational diabetes, um, even when your blood sugar is is pretty well controlled, and it sounds like yours is, um, your baby is likely getting more sugar through his bloodstream um, than an average baby, and that puts him at risk for growing bigger than an average baby. Now, there's nothing saying that your baby is guaranteed to be bigger, and there's no saying that you can't do a great job pushing out a big baby, but your doctor wants to avoid any emergency situations that might result from birthing a great big kiddo, like a shoulder dystocia, where the head gets delivered, but the shoulders are too broad to get out. That's dangerous. Um, That said, being induced early or not being allowed to go past your due date isn't absolutely necessary for either the insulin factor or the big baby factor. Those of us that work labor and delivery, we know how to manage insulin during a labor, whether it's an induced labor or a spontaneous labor. We know how to start the IVs, we know how to use the insulin pumps, we know what we're doing. It's easier if we, um, you know, just for charting purposes and all of that, um, if you have an induction, but easier on us isn't an argument for what should or shouldn't happen during your labor. And if your baby is fine and you're fine, it's also probably fine to wait for labor to start on its own. 
You might want to get some extra monitoring to make sure you're both doing fine, but if you don't want to be induced and there's no real serious medical reason other than, you know, we don't like to let moms with gestational diabetes go past their due date, well, you can simply say no. It might take a little bit of gumption and determination, but you can tell your doctor that this is your choice. I want you to go pick up my book. Um, and I want you to read the section titled, How to Deal with Late Pregnancy Curveballs. Here's what I wrote about when your doctor says your baby is too big and wants to schedule an induction or a C-section. What now? <clears throat> this is chapter six. This happens so often it makes me want to scream. It's more common in doctors than midwives' offices because midwives tend to be less intervention-oriented. They trust the normal physiological processes of birth. They do fewer inductions, and they don't do C-sections at all. If a patient needs a C-section, midwives transfer care to an obstetrician. Here's how this curveball often gets pitched. A woman is a few days or weeks shy of her due date. Her doctor measures her belly and says, this baby's getting too big. I don't, I don't think we better let you go much longer. Or it's going to be too big to fit through your pelvis. Let's give you... Let's get you on the schedule for an induction. Maybe the doctor orders an ultrasound to estimate fetal size and weight, which can be off by a couple of pounds, give or take. Maybe he doesn't. By suggesting the baby is too big, he plants a seed of doubt in the mother's mind. Some doctors forego the induction suggestion altogether and tell mom there's no way she'll be able to push out a baby this size, so she needs a C-section. Now mom thinks she needs surgery before she's even given her body a chance to do what it's designed to do. Estimated fetal size is rarely a good reason to do an induction or a C-section, especially when a baby's not due yet. Even the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists agrees on this. Mothers of all sizes have been delivering small, medium, and large babies vaginally without being induced for thousands of years. There's no reason why this generation of mothers are incapable of delivering their babies. Yes, some mothers with gestational diabetes do grow very big babies, but most mothers don't have that condition, and even those who do deserve the benefit of the doubt that they're capable of having a vaginal birth. They need support, confidence, and encouragement, not seeds of doubt, early inductions, and or surgery. Um, if your doctor tells you she wants to induce or do a C-section because she thinks the baby is too big, tell her you don't want to. You'd rather wait for labor and see what happens. If, after going through labor, it turns out she's right and you need a C-section, well, then so be it. Most of the time, though, spontaneous labor that's allowed to progress normally results in a normal vaginal birth. Don't let that seed of doubt grow. In most cases, our bodies know what to do to get our babies out. So, I want you to go talk to your doctor and say, you know what, I understand your concerns and I still don't want an induction. And then your doctor's going to have to be okay with it. That's what we call informed consent. You find out all the factors that your doctors are concerned about, you weigh them against your own concerns, and you make your own decision. Um, okay, I'm ready to move on to letter number two. This one's really sweet. It's from Maria. She says, It'll be three weeks since my daughter's C-section this Thursday. 
Is it okay to carry the baby, 7 pounds 6 ounces, on her chest in the sling carrier while she walks or stands in order to have her hands free? I have read that it takes 21 days for strong scar tissue to form. Ah, oh, Maria, congratulations on your granddaughter. I think that's sweet. Most of the time, we recommend that women not carry anything heavier than their baby for the first few weeks after a C-section. Um, your daughter is almost three weeks, and at three weeks post-surgery, an amazing amount of healing has already taken place, and most likely, carrying the baby in a sling carrier is fine. I couldn't have survived without my sling carrier. Um, I had you know, two babies under two, and... Having one of the kids in the sling carrier kept my hands free, kept my baby close by, and essentially it kept me from losing my damn mind. Here's the thing, though. You know, your daughter needs to trust the cues her body is giving her. If she has increased pain when she's carrying the baby in the sling, she might want to give herself a bit more healing time. If the sling makes it, makes it easier for her to go for longer walks than she really should be taking, then again, she might want to wait another week or so. But if she feels fine, she isn't painful or too tired, and she doesn't feel any pulling in her incisional area, well then go for it. I'm happy to hear that she's taking some little walks, and I'm really, I'm really glad that she's found something that's going to help keep her hands free. And I'm really glad that you're there to kind of advocate for her. So that's my opinion. Use the sling. I think they're great. Um, let's go for letter number three. We're kind of on a roll here. This one's interesting. Um, this is from Ashley, and she wrote, I just started noticing symptoms of BV. Um, side note, BV is bacterial vaginosis. I'm positive it is BV because I've dealt with it before in my past, recent past. I had BV for about five years off and on, more on than off. I've probably taken over 400 pills of antibiotics to kill the infection. Problem is, it kills all bacteria and it comes right back. I've tried every home remedy there is. Some didn't help with a dam and some made it so much worse. I'm about 10 weeks pregnant and smelled the BV two days ago. I recognized it, not like an old friend, more like a nightmare I have that reoccurs itself. I didn't have BV for almost two years, and my husband gets me pregnant 10 weeks ago after having our second son seven months ago. The only thing that worked was probiotics. It took about a month for it to clear up, but I'm worried if it's harmful to the baby I'm carrying. I'm also concerned with miscarriage. I've never had a miscarriage before and never want to experience it. What do you recommend, if anything at all? Thanks for reading this, Ashley. Oh, Ashley. Oh, honey. I'm sorry you're dealing with that. What a mess. I really feel bad for you. Um, you know, for those of you that aren't as unfortunately experienced with BV as Ashley is, um, I'm, I wrote an article years ago for Fit Pregnancy about it, and it's generated more emails than almost any other subject. So I'm going to read that a bit from that piece today. Um, bacterial vaginosis. Ba Bacterial vaginosis is a super common vaginal infection that affects around 16% of women in the United States. It's the most common vaginal infection diagnosed, and though it's not technically a sexually transmitted disease, women who recently changed sex partners and those who have more than one partner tend to get bacterial vaginosis more easily than other women. 
The vagina is full of a wide variety of normal, healthy bacteria. I repeat, they're normal. When the vagina is healthy, all the different colonies of bacteria get along just fine, like friends in the neighborhood. They balance each other out so that no one colony or group of bacteria takes over. When the vagina is unhealthy or when the normal pH balance that usually works to keep the peace is disrupted, one or more of the colonies can grow in unusual numbers while others can't grow at all. Infection occurs when a group of bacteria grows at abnormal rates. About half of women with BV have no symptoms at all. The other half might notice itching, odor, burning, or pain. Doctors say that if there aren't any symptoms, a woman doesn't need treatment. In these non-symptomatic cases, most of the time, the woman's own immune system takes care of the problem and she eventually gets back to a normal balance of bacteria. If she has symptoms, however, or if she's had a few other BV-related complications, specifically preterm labor, her healthcare provider will order antibiotics to kill the overpopulating bacteria and cure the infection. About 90% of the time, treatment with antibiotics is effective as long as every single pill is taken as directed. Sometimes women have to take more than one course of antibiotics before they get cured. Some women get BV more easily and more than once. Pregnant women tend to get BV more easily than other women. So, um, two, oh. So many factors are undergoing massive change down there that it's not surprising if the keeping the peace conditions that normally stave off BV are a bit off balance. If you change sex partners, use feminine hygiene products like douches and sprays, if you're a smoker, if you have an unhealthy diet, or have immune system disorders, your chances for developing BV or having a chronic case are higher than other women. To get rid of it for good, you might need to make some lifestyle changes. For God's sake, quit smoking already, will ya? And work on your body's ability to heal itself, aka your immune system. That means eating well and exercising, getting plenty of rest, and keeping stress bombs from dropping on your life. Some women swear by probiotics, which are healthy bacteria taken in supplement form, for keeping all their lady bits in top, tip-top shape. So what are the concerns regarding pregnancy? The biggest concern we have about BV is that, in some cases, the infection can travel up from the vagina to the cervix, uterus, and fallopian tubes and cause a painful, potentially scarring condition called pelvic inflammatory disease. If it scars and blocks the tubes, that can cause infertility or ectopic pregnancy. Here's the good news. That doesn't happen very often, and it's very, very unusual for a woman to have that level of infection without symptoms. More often, she'll have an itch or pain that makes her go to the doctor for treatment long before the infection spreads. BV can cause problems during pregnancy like premature labor, late miscarriage, and premature rupture of membranes. It's rare, though, and not something most women have to worry about. If you're getting prenatal care, your doctor or midwife will be looking for signs and symptoms of infection. They'll treat you with antibiotics, and you'll be just fine. For those of you who are worried about BV causing infertility, here are my recommendations. Do everything you can to tune up your immune system. In addition to seeing a midwife or doctor, consult with a nutritionist, naturopath, or natural health specialist. Work on your diet and lifestyle to eliminate anything that could be reducing your body's ability to heal itself and get pregnant. After tuning up your immune system, if pregnancy doesn't happen spontaneously after six months, um, if you're over 35, to a year of real effort of having sex at the right time of the month and often enough, 
talk to your healthcare provider about next steps. So that's essentially the bacterial vaginosis 101 rundown. Ashley, you've already dealt with BV more times than you'd like, and I'm going to recommend that you take a different approach than you have in the past. I really want you to see a naturopath, which is a doctor of natural medicine, um, in addition to your regular prenatal health care provider. They're going to be able to guide you in tuning up your immune system and changing your diet and lifestyle and adding probiotics and supplements in a safe way that will get you in great shape. I have had so much good luck with naturopaths. They just, <clears throat> they see things in a different way. Um, rather than simply going with the approach of adding antibiotics, they take a look at the whole girl and they say, what else can we do to make your immune system um, do the job it's intended to do? And you'll be amazed at how effective they can be. So that's what I'm going to recommend today. Um, and you guys, this is going to be a very short podcast this week um, because I feel like we've covered a lot of information dipping into the grab bag. So I want to thank you guys again for listening. Please share. This podcast is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Um, pick up the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again, everybody. We'll talk longer next week. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days.